1: welcome to What Catholics Believe. I'm your host, Thomas Nagley, and with me tonight is Father William Jenkins from the Society of St. Pius V. He's also the pastor of Immaculate Conception Church in Norwood, Ohio. Hello, Father. How are you? Fine, Tom. Thank you. How are you doing? Pretty good, Father. Thanks for being here tonight.
0: Well, thank you. That's mutual. Thank you.
1: I thought we could start with a very nice email that we received from a viewer just recently, Father. They write in and say, Thank you from the bottom of my heart for answering my questions and so promptly. You are one of my most favorite priests because you are good, like our Lord, and you help me very much. Your program is excellent, and I thank you for it. God bless you and reward you for all the help you give to Holy Mother Church. I keep you in my prayers and thank you for praying for me.
0: Well, that's very uh, heartwarming. It's ahead, and I appreciate hearing you very much, and I'm glad. We answered someone's questions, probably. It's <laughs> <laughs> reassuring. So uh, I'll say, I just ask you for patience, but uh, uh, thank you for responding as you did. <clears throat> it helps to get emails like this following up to know that we did something right. <laughs> so it's not meant to uh, <clears throat> give a, make us proud of ourselves, but rather to uh, encourage us that... Uh, we're accomplishing something of, of help to somebody and some uh, some benefits. So thank you very much for your prayers. Appreciate that.
1: Definitely. All right, Father, I'd like to get into this email that we've had sitting in our inbox for many, many months now. It's titled Francis and Hermeticism. But Father, before we get into this, I'd like to, uh, to just ask you, I had a viewer just today ask me, why does Father Jenkins talk so much about Francis? Mm-hmm. So how would you respond to that?
0: Well, probably because Francis talks so much. (laughs) Uh, He he doesn't stop saying things that are offensive to the faith, offensive to pious ears, and which also can be very misleading for Mm. certain people. um, But I would say often when we do talk about Francis on the program here, it's because our questions either explicitly ask about him or they ask about something related to something he has just commented on. Uh, So there's some connection often between the questions asked and something Francis has just said or done. Um, But I I think it's important for us to uh, comment on him because he is the the Pope of the Novus Ordo. And, uh, I mean, even in, in responding to that question now, again, I'm talking about Francis, <laughs> which I had not intended to, to do, right? <laughs> um, but I, I would just uh, say that Francis as the embodiment, as the personification, as the, the incarnation of, of modernism itself, is a very good example of a very bad example. And so, if we want to illustrate uh, the the meaning of modernism, he's a he's just a, the, the quintessential example of modernism, and what, who a modernist is and what a modernist does. <clears throat> so you know, when, whenever we're reaching for something or someone to illustrate um, modernism itself. Uh, which St. Pius X has denounced as the, the most dangerous enemy the Church has ever faced. It seems appropriate to reach for something that Francis has said. It seems appropriate to uh, bring up something Francis has done as a prime example of what modernism is and what modernism does, what it does to faith.
1: mm mm-hmm. Well, Father, let's get into this email a little bit. It's, it's rather lengthy, so I'd like to, to try and attempt to summarize mm-hmm. some of it for the sake of brevity. But uh, the, the viewer here essentially says how back uh, some last year, at some point, many months ago, Francis uh, said something along the lines of God requires man in order to be God. And you we talked about this on the program, and you mentioned how this ties in with the idea of process theology. And this viewer says that the process theology can essentially trace its roots to this idea of hermeticism. And uh, to just read a, a few passages here from the email, he says, In short, according to Hermes, the gods of Egypt need the Egyptian priest in order to be gods. It is the priests who literally make them fashioning their bodies from the very earth. In a very direct, literal, and honest way, he is expressing here what every process theologian and hermetic theosophist has always asserted concerning the nature of their god. Yet the admission of the gods' need for human artifice to be brought into being The so-called great work is coupled with the acknowledgement of its passing and false nature and the existence of a true God who is not pleased by the hermetic art. It seems necessarily so. No one would confuse a deity that depends on human artifice for its completion with the transcendent, omnipotent, and omnibenevolent God of whom all are incoherently aware, and who can be known at least imperfectly by any thinking person. But then insofar as a hermetic magician knows that he is a practicing idolatry by his sorcery and divination, he is objectively a theistic Satanist. And this is essentially my point. It would be charitable to presume that Francis is simply out of his mind, but realistically, I don't find it likely. He also says here, I'm relieved to find that most of the traditional Catholics I know are blissfully unaware of this and do not entertain such terrible thoughts. But at the same time, I worry they do not appreciate the danger. He says, I think that Francis is injecting these ideas into the Catholic conversation, partly in order to make Catholics comfortable with them. I imagine that it is especially dangerous for these Catholics who still want to defend his statements from the charges of heresy that will inevitably arise, especially from us, quote, mad sayes. In short, I can imagine a situation arising in which, thanks to obedience to the Holy Father, these ideas gain a foothold in the mainstream, leading to the revival of public cults, to the demons by means of the hermetic art. <clears throat> Certainly, this would be the adoration of the beast and dragon of the apocalypse. I honestly believe that it wouldn't take very much at this point, And our Lord said that Satan would deceive, if possible, even the elect. So, your comment on that, Father? You've, you've read Well, the, it's, the, it's the, very well said.
0: Uh, I did read this. Thanks uh, to you, uh, letting me see this just uh, uh, very recently. And uh, I was impressed by uh, this writer's insight, uh, knowledge. But also the manner of expression, I think he, he expressed very well some rather obscure ideas, okay And um, even at that, I mean there people would probably have to read this over several times to really <laughs> get a good grasp of what he's saying. And in their minds, it might even awaken more questions than answers because they'd have to do some research, uh, obviously research that he has done. <clears throat> so he has a background here that many people don't have, but commenting on uh, what again Francis has has said um, about God needing man to be God, uh, that is a, is a very peculiar statement uh, that really um, evo- evo- evades understanding unless you understand the Hermetic sense of of it, only in terms of Hermeticism can that make any sense at all. So I think that our writer is is right in thinking, well, in relating what Francis says to Hermeticism, uh, the idea that God, or the gods, as such, the gods become incarnate through the efforts of of man that we have opened up in a sense the portals for the gods to come into this world for a worship and for the sake of bringing power to men Um, I'm extrapolating a little bit beyond what he said there <clears throat> but, you know, I, I'm also trying to express it in such a way that one can see the point uh, that he's making about this being the door to the occult. Um, <clears throat> there are angelic powers, evil angelic powers, that want to be worshipped by men. We call them devils. Right? Now, they are fallen angels. They do not have bodies. They have to somehow be invited into the world and uh, have a a certain incarnation insofar as they have to act upon this material world. And so, um, when people have made idols to false gods, they actually open up, in a sense, a, a, a kind of portal uh, uh, um, a means by which an immaterial evil spirit, a fallen angel, <coughs> who has rebelled against God and been condemned, for it <coughs> now finds a pathway or an avenue uh, to to possess something in this world, to actually be invoked by incantations before an, an idol to be to be not only uh, invited, but to be invited into something that was fashioned by a human being for this evil spirit to possess, as it were. Now, one might say, well, does Catholicism actually acknowledge that an evil spirit can can possess a material thing? The answer is absolutely yes. If you go to the old uh, Roman ritual, um, if you go to the chapter on exorcism, You'll find there are 21 rules in Latin, directed 21 instructions directed to the exorcist of what he is to do. And uh, the latter rules talk about evil spirits actually um, localizing themselves in certain places, but also uh, just seizing control of amulets and other uh, material things. <coughs> and yes, they can. They can latch on to, as it were, a a immaterial thing. And so when the um, human beings of old uh, fell into idolatry and began to fashion idols, they were actually invoking these evil spirits to to come and dwell within them and to work through them. And the evil spirits were willing to do so. There's a reason why St. Paul says the gods of the Gentiles, that's the pagans, are devils. They are. The gods of the Gentiles were devils, and they were invoked, and they were invited to come into the world, and they were invited to, invited to through the, the means of the idols, exercise influence, influence over people, influence over human affairs. Um, the, uh, and, and through these things, they were served, and they were served not only um, with, uh, you know, foods that were left for them, and so on. But their, their wills, their evil wills, were, were discerned, were divined, and then carried out by poor, deluded individuals who uh, found themselves, perhaps unwittingly so, at the service of some sat- sat- satanically guided spirit, right? Uh, Hermeticism is really all about this. It's a matter of power. Satanism today is about that those who are involved in satanic cults will tell you, <clears throat> it is really about power. Wicca, although it officially doesn't believe in a, in, in a deity, a deity as such, or, or a devil as such, um, nonetheless, it is about power. And both Wicca and satanism have the same one single commandment, and thou harmest none, do what thou wilt." Or do what you want as long as you don't hurt anyone. That's what they say. Of course, that's the formula for white magic, you know, but black magic is not that at all, you know. There's uh, no real line or fence between the two of them, right? Uh, They're invoking the same evil spirits, regardless of whether they call themselves Satanists or Wiccans or whatever. They're invoking the same evil spirits to do damage, and um, but you might also say the same thing about the ten thousand gods and goddesses of Hinduism. Um, again, Saint Paul would say the same thing: the the the, the gods of the Gentiles, or the pagans, are in fact devils. They're invoking spirits who are not the spirits of gods or goddesses at all. And uh, you know, Tom, even in, in making idols for these things, those who make the idols are basically. Uh, Admitting, well, this is not really a god. What kind of a god would need me to make a statue of an elephant and then pour milk and smear butter over it? No? <clears throat> there, there's something uh, somewhat degrading and, and degraded about all this. <clears throat> and I know I'll probably be accused of being non-ecumenical. But this certainly doesn't correspond in any way to what we know as God, as revealed to us by our Lord Jesus Christ who is truly the Son of God and has revealed to us the Father and sent to us the Holy Ghost. Now, uh, I don't mean to monopolize what little of conversation there is, but I, I just want to say that this writer is on track to apply this somehow to Francis, to wrap that up. Uh, inevitably, all, all roads lead to, back to Francis, it seems, <laughs> even if we try trying out to. Um, Francis, in saying this, that God needs man to be God, is a very strong implication and you know uh, pardon me for saying this uh, or don't but with all of Francis' exaltation of the Talmud and all the rest I can't help but help that he is a follower of the Kabbalah that he's a Kabbalist I can't help but think that he really is an adherent of the Kabbalah Uh, he talks like one Uh, he, he certainly seems to conduct himself as one some of the phrases he uses, um, I'm not saying he's quoting the Zohar left and right, uh, the Book of Light, uh, the Kabbalists, but he just seems to think like a like a good Kabbalist um, of the Jewish Kabbal, and uh, that would seem to harmonize very well with his statement that God needs man to be God, at least in this world, that that's how he exercises power in this world, uh, through human agency. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is uh, far, far, far cry. This is the, the pagan sense of the term, not not in any way the, the Catholic and Christian sense of the term.
1: Mm-hmm. And Father, um, I like how it, it, towards the end of his email here, he kind of ties it all together and says that this idea of hermeticism—it's really nothing more than the devil's. It's a reformulation of the devil's perennial idea. He says, "Of you shall be as gods." Mm-hmm. And, and uh, you know, we've—we've never—I I don't think we've ever—we've ever seen a time where it's been this idea has been so prevalent before. You know, I just mm-hmm. mentioned on the last program about seeing the sign that says the most important thing in life is me. Uh, you know, th- this mm-hmm. idea ties in with uh, with um, uh, the, the worshiping of, of idols so much, mm-hmm. and you know, we just. I believe, but uh, the
0: worshiping of idol for the sake of power, mm
1: -hmm.
0: for the sake of the power that this evil spirit can give through the the evil. You know, the true God, as the creator of all, can become incarnate because he has absolute power over all created nature. But a fallen evil spirit, who is a creature himself, does not have power to adopt another nature. And so, Satan cannot become incarnate. So he can take possession of an existing human being, but he cannot become incarnate as the Son of God can and did. Okay? So, that's why these idols that they fashion are so important, because they're a, a way for this evil spirit to mimic incarnation. But, of course, in a very evil way. It all gets back to what you just read here and and the point of Power. It's about power. It's about tapping into this power. Mm -hmm. In this case, a very malevolent power that wants uh, to concede what power it has to in order to take power and control and possession of those who worship it.
1: And, and I believe another manifestation of that idea is how we see in society today this obsession with the economy. You know, it's it's, it's all about the economy, stupid. That is the other And we, we just uh, recently, I believe, it might have been the third Sunday of Lent, the, the epistle okay. of the Mass, St. Paul talked about um, the the worshipping of money being being as as idolatry. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, I don't think we've ever...
0: Oddly enough, Francis uses the same theme. Yeah. But he yeah. uses it in a yeah. very different way. He talks about it as though he's obsessing, not about the next life. He's talking about this life in this world, as though everything mattered about a heavy world in this world. Mm-hmm. He doesn't talk about saving souls. He talks about poverty and other evils of this world. That that's what he's focusing on, not sin. He told us basically, stop, stop obsessing about sin, and think about you know, the, 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 the uh, inequities in this world. Well, I mean, so can like a wonderful capitalist? Yeah. <laughs> you know, there's a, this, this writer also does mention uh, the little beast, you know, and the, the little beast has a role in the apocalypse of calling all mankind to worship the great beast, right? And uh, the great dragon. And uh, his role is to call everybody to the worship of the world, basically. And the apotheosis of the world symbolized, well, ultimately, the Antichrist. And uh, time and time again, we see that uh, that is the voice coming out of the Vatican, uh, talking about, well, it's been going on. If I may mention someone other than Francis, I'll I'll mention right on down the line, even uh, the one they call St. John Paul the Great, I'll mention others. I'll mention Benedict XVI. All of those that they've been talking about being so conservative compared to Francis. But they've all said the th- same thing going back to John the Twenty Third, We need to have a world authority. We need to have a world government that controls the economy in particular. They call it over and over again. A world government that controls the economy. And the book of the Apocalypse tells us that one of the hallmarks of the Antichrist will be that during his reign... Those everyone will be marked with the sign of the beast, so that he can neither buy nor sell, <clears throat> unless he is in the good graces, so to speak, of the beast. Right? That he's a true loyal worshipper of the beast. Otherwise, he will be excommunicated from mankind, uh, financially, materially. And uh, when I see John the Twenty-Third, Paul the Sixth, and right on down the line, they're all. They're all saying the same thing when it comes to this. We need a world authority to govern mankind's economy. That's a very scary idea, you know, that uh, is truly prophetic. But uh, the prophets all warn about it as being a hallmark of the, of the Antichrist, the reign of the Antichrist, something that will be realized during the reign of the Antichrist. That also uh, seems to harmonize very well with what our writers were writing about here with ter- in terms of Hermeticism.
1: Mm-hmm. Would you say, Father, that that is a fulfillment of the biblical prophecy that Rome will become the seat of the Antichrist? Uh,
0: well, I don't know that's a biblical prophecy. I think that the uh, it, it is attributed to Our Lady of La Salette.
1: Okay.
0: That was um, a point that she made. Um, uh, St. John Bosco also has some interesting references there and prophecies that he's made uh but we don't necessarily don't get into that right mm-hmm. now um but uh i do I do believe that um there is a an application there yeah, I do think there's a there's a a um what should i say a connection
1: Mm-mm. between the two yeah well, we could certainly get into this a lot deeper, father, but uh I think we could summarize it all in saying this viewer yeah. is is uh right. Dead on here. So. Well, he sees uh, more deeply into
0: this than most people would. I think so. Because of his background yeah. in this. And, uh, you yeah, know, if anybody's interested in looking up Hermeticism, E-H-E-R-M-E-T-I-C-I-S-M, right? Hermeticism, or Hermes Trismegistus, uh, you know, the, there are any number of vocabulary words you could help one, you know, do some investigating into this, but... Uh, I think people who are interested could find their way, too.
1: Mm-hmm. He has a few quotes in there uh-huh. too, where, uh, where St. Augustine treated this, uh, this issue as well, so that would be a good Right, right. St. Augustine would have. Yeah.
0: You know, I mean, all of this actually goes back into the deep, dark past of Gnosticism. Yeah. Uh, and if, if somebody wanted to look that up, I think they would see, uh, actually, uh, again, in the modern theology... Uh, the Gnostic roots of these things, which which are intertwined with the occult also. Gnostic, G-N-O-S-T-I-C anybody could look that up and begin to uh, research that. I warn you though, because it's it's fascinating in kind of a perverse sort of way and so one can easily fall down into that rabbit hole. Uh, One could easily Wind up at the Mad Hatter's Tea Party reading about these things. One could feel like he's in a house of the fun house of mirrors <laughs> reading about these things because it is so intellectually twisted. Um, it's fascinating, but in a way that can be somewhat toxic. So I would advise anybody to exercise caution in going there.
1: All right, well, Father, let's move on to another topic here. We have uh, an email we just recently received that I thought was a great, a great topic where a viewer writes in says, unlike many traditionalist groups, the Society of St. Pius V seems unique in attempting to embrace all, not just some, truly traditional Catholic teachings. Thus, it's unfortunate that many people group the society with the strict sede contest, although the society expressly rejects this non-Catholic position. As Father Jenkins has noted, the Church has always allowed dissent and even resistance of novel and dangerous positions, which are antagonistic to tradition, even when putatively taught by the clergy, but only as honest, positive doubt and only as private opinion. Thus, rather than allowing the Society of St. Pius V's position to be defined by others, why not choose a brief descriptive phrase which captures this subtle difference? Perhaps something like "sede dubio" or the initial phrasing from the recently mentioned "Papa dubius as Papa nullus." it's
0: uh, a very good question, um, and I, I think our writer has has zeroed in on a problem and um, and made explicit what otherwise has remained implicit for so long, and that is you know, the, the Society of Saint Pius Tenth has made great hay over just hurling the the thunderbolt of sedivacantism against anybody it doesn't like you know anybody who would disagree with me and of course um even people who have no idea what it, what it means say oh, you know sedivacantism well, it must be something very bad you know? <laughs> <laughs> so um and they they just tar everybody with that same brush which is really not not just even though it's been very very clear to any number of them that you know. The, that, that, that is not you know, accurate okay? um, our position is as it always has been uh, as you know Tom that we believe there is a very serious um, objective grounds there are serious objective grounds there are serious arguments we have serious reasons for questioning the papacy of, John, of, of Francis and those before him who uh, are popes of the Novus Ordo you know, um, and, um, but at the same time we realize that while we can raise the questions we're not necessarily um, authorized to give the definitive answer for all the Catholic people as though we can define dogma for everyone and so we might even say that logically we come to this conclusion uh, that the Novus popes, you know, are not popes. One or the other, all of them, regardless. I mean, people can differ. We we would differ among ourselves even, and discuss these things among ourselves, you know. Um, but I think there are two things that seem absolutely clear to me. Uh, one is that the things that have been done to the church by John the Twenty Third, Paul the Sixth, and those who have come after them. Uh, so outrageous, so damaging, uh, so um, inimical to the to the Catholic faith and Catholic worship, that they give uh, ample grounds for serious doubt and questioning as to whether these can be the the work of the Vicar of Christ on Earth. I think that one has a perfectly legitimate reason to question that. I think it's almost impossible not to ask oneself that question in light of what has happened. That's one thing that, to me, seems absolutely clear. And uh, the other thing is uh, that I am not the pope. And um, none of these traditional Catholic people, whether they be bishops or uh, priests or lay people, none of them are the pope either. And they cannot speak with the magisterial authority of the Catholic Church. And uh, they can't define dogma, certainly, so they cannot lay down as dogma their own personal uh, conclusion, even logical, even very logical conclusion on the subject uh, so I think we we just can't exceed our our authority in doing this if we were to do so, that we would be uh arrogating to ourselves the authority of the papacy, and that would be as bad as what we're,
1: mm-hmm. what
0: we're rejecting. Right? I understand there is one uh, Took bishop in the area here who actually has posted on a bulletin board in the vestibule of his church uh, cartoon representations of the different groups and, and has actually had the theological profundity to post a picture of a chicken representing uh, us, maybe the Society of St. Pius V or Immaculate Conception, and the chicken is supposed to represent the fact that we are somehow afraid to simply state that Francis is not the Pope dogmatically. Okay, And I would say, if, if I were going to lower myself to that level, that I would post a chicken in our vestibule to represent him <laughs> and his position to think, well, okay, he might say, we have the heart of a chicken, but I would say, and I would never do this because, that his position has the brain of a chicken <laughs> in thinking that this somehow makes him the Pope and enables him to pronounce dogmatically that Francis is not the Pope. Because, uh, you know, it is it is not really a matter of having the brain of a chicken or the heart of a chicken. It's a matter of objective reality. I mean, I'm not the Pope. I can't define dogma. I'm not going to try. I'm going to follow the doctrines of the Catholic Church, and if I come to what I consider to be a logical conclusion, I will tell you it is a logical conclusion. But I will not say anathema sit at the end of it if you don't agree with me. <laughs> so uh, I just think we have to. Be very, I know we have to be very careful about that. Um, having said all of that, okay, and in an attempt to somewhat address the question there dear writer, asked, I think there is needed some, some kind of uh, formula other than, "sede the contest. I mean, those who, who claim that it's a matter of fact, it's beyond doubt, there can be no question, but that Francis is the vicar of Christ on Earth, they, they need a title too, Sede Plainist, uh, Sede occupatists, whatever they want to call themselves, but, uh, you know, I, I don't know that anybody has a term for them either that can be used derisively and in in a derogatory fashion. Oh, they are just a bunch of, uh, city platists, you know, Uh, so they can hurl the epithets back and forth. But I do think that there must be some expression that that simply states what I believe is simple Catholicism, the simple Catholic uh, understanding that There can be serious grounds for questioning the legitimacy of, a, of a, the, the papacy, especially someone who does what these men have done,
1: mm-hmm.
0: uh, without uh, also uh, conveying the idea that their position is a dogmatic position, that they have uh, somehow defined their own dogma to the effect. Mm-hmm. Now, this uh, this fine uh, writer uh, used the expression, city dubiousness. I mean, even the Novus Ordo cardinals have have proposed dubia, haven't they? Yeah. So, um, you know, who can argue with uh, the dubious or dubitous, you know? Except saying dubia sounds, well, you get the dubie. And it might sound like some kind of a 1950s. Uh, <laughs> I don't know. Um, so you want to find something that has a has a ring of seriousness to it. And I don't know if Sadie Dubius is quite conveys that uh, ring of seriousness. So I do think he's on the right track to say yes, we do need some kind of expression for that. Um, And I would like to uh, ask our listeners to bombard the email with suggestions. Hmm. Maybe we should even have a contest at some (laughs) time. But I would appreciate a little help in this coming up with uh, an expression that really encapsulates Encapsulate the position of the Society Saint Pius V makes it clear, but also you know shows a, a certain uh, uh, depth
1: to it. Yeah, Father, I I would agree with this with this view, and I think that's a great a great email there. But I would have to say I think that uh, that the Society's position is perfectly clear for all who wish to to know the truth. You know, I think just. Uh, Reading, I know the first time I read the um, Society's statement of principles in a, in a time of crisis, I was astounded by just how clear they are and how just matter of fact they are, and how so many, uh, so many just imaginary things are made up and they're all just dispelled if one would just simply read the statement of principles okay. in, a, in a time of crisis. And I think that um, perhaps part of the uh, confusion could be done away with by simply um, spreading that that yeah. document more. Um, ubiquitously.
0: Mm-hmm. Ubiquitously. I like that <laughs> word. Uh, I agree with you. And I, and, I, you know, people can ask for that, too, and we can find a way to send them yes. a copy of the Statement of Principles yes. of the Society of St. Pius V. Mm-hmm. Um, and, again, if anybody has a suggestion as far as seriodubitism seri- or, <laughs> or something, something yeah. along those lines, please... Uh, yeah. Please let
1: us know. Sure. All right, Father, let's move on to another question concerning the society here. This viewer says, How do the clergy of the Society of St. Pius V and also the Congregation of St. Pius V, how do they presume to have the historically unprecedented jurisdiction to operate from routine absolutions to establishing seminaries and convents and (coughs) societies without legitimate authority, office, mission, or habitual jurisdiction, contrary to the divinely instituted hierarchical constitution of the church?
0: Mm-hmm. Um, okay, could you start, read the first sentence when I, just just the begin? That was one whole sentence. Yeah. I <laughs> the first sentence is the sentence. But what is the first phrase? How does it what? How does the clergy presume to have the historically, un- to have the the historical. historically unprecedented jurisdiction? To historically operate? unprecedented. Well, I guess the point is we don't have a historically unprecedented position because the church has been through um, a great deal of trouble and trial tribulation. The Church has endured many vicissitudes in their history, and uh, I would say if, if the times we're in, and our response to those times is unprecedented, it is only with regard to the scope of the problem, not the nature of the problem. Because if one looks back to virtually any era in the Church's history, there has been, at some time, uh, at, at all times, somewhere, a, a crisis. Um, and that crisis can, involved, can involve a uh, communications crisis during times of persecution. Um, can involve um, just the uncertainty of knowing what to do and the ability to communicate and get uh, you know, authoritative answers and the need to act for the sake of souls. The Church is actually woven into her law uh, various principles that we can follow. Um, for example, um, so, sometimes people cite Canon 209, positive and probable doubt and common error. I always found uh, Canon 209 to be interesting as an indication of the Church's mind on matters like that, when there's a question of whether or not one has the authorization to act sacramentally. Um, But I never found it to be adequate. It was just an indication of the Church's mind on that. That it, and I won't go into detail about that because you know, we get off in canon law an explanation, but I think many of our people understand what I mean because they probably heard canon 209 allowing for cases where a priest doesn't know whether he has jurisdiction to perform a sacramental act or whether the people know whether or not he has the jurisdiction and whether he can act with that doubt with the common error, his doubt their error right? and the church says in that case yes he can whether there's legitimate common error or legitimate reasonable doubt, he can act sacramentally. As I say, does that cover everything we're doing? Of course not. (coughs) Does it indicate the Church's mind about the administering of the the sacraments to people? Yes, it does. It does indicate the Church's thinking about this. Um, With regard to the principle ecclesia supplet, the Church supplies the jurisdiction. That, I think, is much, is much broader and much more inclusive. Does that answer everything? No, not really. I think one could argue the point um, of the limitations, but that is a legitimate Catholic principle. And the Church has uh, recognized this for the, the length of her existence. I mean, has, has, has accepted the principle that the Church itself supplies jurisdiction where it is necessary for the salvation of souls. Uh, in her own canon law, the, well, let, let's say, when, when the code of canon law, as it had been revised by uh, under St. Pius X, and published then uh, after the war, uh, the Great War, by uh, Pope uh, Benedict XV, uh, had as its 2,414th canon and last canon that the supreme law of the church is the salvation of souls uh, salus animarum suprema, suprema lex and by that she sums up all of the laws and all of her prescriptions that go before by crowning it with that statement this, the salvation of souls is the supreme law of the church and all the other laws of the church are directed to it really they are not meant to be inimical to the law of salvation of souls. Why? Because Christ himself gave that purpose to the church. And in giving his powers of jurisdiction, that's the power of government and the power of magisterium, by giving his power of ministerium, sanctifying souls, justifying souls from sins, sanctifying them by grace, okay, but through the power of the sacraments, our Lord gave his powers to the church for this purpose. When he gave to the apostles on the day of the Ascension, uh, telling them to go and to preach the gospel to all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost, and of teaching them to observe all the things that our Lord commanded them. Those powers that our Lord gave to his apostles, he gave for the sake of saving souls. And the church is, very, is utterly mindful of that. The true church is totally mindful of that all the time. And so she crowned her canon law and um, with that, with that single canon, the shortest of all the canons, four words, "Salus animarum suprema lex." <laughs> so, um, <clears throat> the idea that the Church herself, the immortal, the Holy Mother Church, right, uh, would grant the authority to individual priests to act sacramentally for the good of souls, is actually written into the law at certain times okay for example in the code of canon law it is explicitly permitted for a priest who is excommunicated who has no jurisdiction who is not even considered a member of the catholic church anymore if he finds someone dying who needs him and is pleading for absolution that he can give absolution (coughs) in the name of the church in the name of christ (coughs) in the name of the father and the son and the holy ghost that the church authorizes him to act gives him the authority to act there to forgive the sins of that poor dying sinner. Even though he may be much worse, morally speaking, than the poor dying sinner. Um, The Church said long ago that the donatist error is a heresy, that the efficacy of the sacrament depends upon the moral state of the priest who is administering the sacrament. The Church condemned that error. and The Church goes one better than that. Or maybe much, much farther than that. In condemning the Donatist error, the church even goes so far as to say, even a priest, insofar as validly ordained, no matter how evil and rotten and, and perverse he may be, that would merit excommunication of the church, for the sake of that dying sinner, the church invests him with that power to forgive those sins in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. That's wonderful. That's amazing. But it shows the mind of the Church, you know. (laughs) What is necessary for the salvation of souls is the supreme law. But again, I don't think ecclesia suplet is the total answer. I think the total answer to the question is, again, we're traditional Catholics. We follow Catholic tradition. If we don't follow Catholic tradition, we shouldn't be calling ourselves traditional Catholic. Okay, If we're going to call ourselves traditional Catholic, we have to follow Catholic tradition. But if you look back in Catholic tradition, which is embodied in our history, you find exactly this, that there are priests and there are, are bishops who acted, and that they have acted in times of crisis as we're doing now. Maybe not on this scale, globally, as they like to use the expression, but in various places at various times, they have. And I'll, and I'll give you an example of that, okay? This comes down to a time of confusion. I think I mentioned it before. During the time of the Great Western Schism. Remember, the 1300s were a pretty miserable time, okay? And um, there were many terrible things: Black Plague, Hundred Years War, um... And, and so, on. I mean, lots of evil things were going on. Scholasticism, the philosophy was being twisted into nominalism uh, by some strange uh, uh, perversity of thought. And it seemed like, as so the whole world was just coming apart at the seams, you know? And um, into that century came Philip Lebel of France, Philip the Fair, and basically took hostage the papacy. To Avignon, France, for 70 years, called the Babylonian captivity of the church. And when the Pope finally was persuaded to return from Avignon to Rome, he died, that that particular Pope, and a Pope Urban VI was elected. The French cardinals who had just elected him decided they didn't like him. And so they went back to Avignon and they elected somebody else. Now imagine the confusion when uh, a large number of the same cardinals who elected Urban VI went back to Avignon and elected somebody else. And there was an enormous amount of confusion at the time. People didn't know what to make of this. Um, the, you know, the, the cardinals who elected Urban VI, many of them were arguing, well, it wasn't really valid because we were under duress to an, to an elected Italian, and we had no choice. Okay? So they went back to Avignon and elected a Frenchman. Okay? So suddenly you had what was called the great Western schism, uh, created by these worldly cardinals. Okay, And then there was an attempt, to, I mean, you know, one would die and have a successor, the other would die and have a successor. You know, they each appointed their own cardinals who were electing uh, successors to them. And Finally, the, the plan came to uh, convince both of them at Avignon and Rome to step down, if they would get together in council in Pisa and elect a pope. Uh, and if the other two would resign, they would leave one and then it would all be brought back together again. And uh, we could have predicted this from a human point of view that uh, the council in Pisa got together and elected John and the other two would not resign. Now we had three. So things were going to bad to worse because it was all really the result of human frailty and human perversity that was doing this and uh, the only solution was God's will prevailing here so um, and it did I mean at the time people must have thought there is no way out of this mess they must have especially after they elected somebody in Pisa and then suddenly they had three they were multiplying like the sorcerer's apprentice too, with the brooms you know and they figured oh, we're just making it worse. Everything we do just makes it worse. So some must have thought, there's no way to retrieve this situation. It is humanly impossible. And you know what? they were right. It was humanly impossible. And at a time like that, people begin to pray and say, Well, God, it's your church. We can't solve it. I'm not going to save your church. God, it is you. You know, you alone can do this, and we can't conceive of how you would do it, but then we can't conceive of the power of your grace. So we're going to pray. We're going to beg, beg uh, God in heaven to grant us to rescue us from this seemingly bottomless pit. You yeah. know, and He did. You know, God did, and I guess when He did, I guess He made it look easy. You know, came together and Martin, Martin the Fifth. It was a great pope, Uh, 1415, I think it was. Um, After all that time, about one generation, 40 years, had grown up. And uh, in this maelstrom, in this this confusion. But during that time, I mean, there were many people, including saints, who were following false popes. What I guess we'd consider anti-popes. They weren't popes at all. And... um, they, they, one thing, they all held the same faith, they all worshipped at the same Holy Sacrifice of the Mass, they all had the same catechism, so they all had the same doctrines they believed in, and they all followed the same moral principles, uh, regardless of whether they were following Avignon or Pisa or Rome. So they all actually had the same religion. Okay. Now we're in a situation where um, the modernists have really taken care of that issue. Um, But uh, I think it goes back to the same point, though. At the end of this, when Pope Martin V was elected and he became the vicar of Christ on earth, he became the Holy Father, and all came to acknowledge him as the one true pontiff, <clears throat> um there were not these pogroms against the followers of Avignon and against Pisa to say, well, all that you did, all your marriages, all your confessions, all these things are invalid. You know, we have to go back and start over again. And no, I mean those who functioned in, in matters of confusion and uh and and just trying to make the best of it for the sake of the salvation of souls again. Uh, They found that the church actually gave them credit for that and uh, did not uh, penalize them for acting in times of confusion. The the confusion was not their fault. They inherited the confusion uh, from the failure of others. And so they were trying to be true to the church, and the church acknowledged that. And to this day, the church in her history does not call the Avignon popes or papacy anti She doesn't call them that. Doesn't call the man elected in Pisa an anti because of the confusion. There was nothing formal about it in so far as it was willful. It was just downright confusion. So the church actually gives the benefit of almost, you might say, uh, whatever uh, good intentions one might have had, and without, um, as it as it were, voiding what they had done, even if they were mistakenly following someone who was not a true pope, and and um, but they and they considered and and authorizing them to do marriages, right? following bishops who were following a false pope, who were authorizing to do marriages, but they weren't really um, following a true pope. They did not have any position that they could legitimately claim from him. You understand what I mean, Tom? So I think, again, the history of the Church is such that it does provide for us uh, the, the lesson of Catholic tradition as to what we must do now. And I can't help but think that God allowed that to happen, not only for the sake of those Catholic people back then and what they were doing, but as a matter of instruction for you and me and the rest of us here and now in dealing with the modernists, that God allows us to look back in Catholic tradition and see how did the Catholic Church judge this case? How did it judge what these people did? What these bishops did, what these priests did, what these lay people did? Well, we have concrete examples that have been thoroughly researched. Uh, we know what they did. Um, and we see that, and we know how the Church judged it, and what the Church made of it afterwards, you mm-hmm. This is as concrete a reality as, as, as God could provide for us, as a guide for what we are to do now. And this is simply what, what, is, what is guiding us now. We see what the Church has approved before in times of crisis and confusion, and we're trying to do now to be faithful to what the Church judged then.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Now, later on, you know, we, we submit ourselves always you know, to the judgment of the Church, but we're just trying to be faithful and uh this is the example of catholic tradition that's what we're following.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, Father, to bring the program full circle and return to the the first email that I read where our viewer uh expressed thanks to you for answering her questions and and gave thanks to you for all the the um help that you've given to Holy Mother Church. I think that's that's very fitting. You know, you mentioned all this um confusion, this this great t- time of confusion that we live in and I think that there should be uh, a lot of Thanksgiving to yourself and the Society of Saint Pius V to, for being a voice crying in the wilderness, as it were. You know, we have these, <clears throat> these times of great confusion, and just to hear this um, this moral clarity coming from someone, I think, is absolutely essential to the times we live Well, Tom,
0: thank you. I hope it's I hope it's clear. Uh, we're just trying to carry on. I mean, we're trying to carry on the mind of the Church uh, and conduct ourselves accordingly. Yeah. Um, according to the light that God himself has given us in Catholic tradition. And, um, you know, it concerns me that there are those who say, well, you can't do that, you can't do that, you can't do that, because, you know, the Church has said, you can't do that. And my point is, if they're, if they're criticizing what's going on in the Vatican right now and in the modern Church and saying, well, they're rejecting Catholic tradition, and they're wrong in rejecting Catholic tradition. But then they turn to us and say, but you can't do that, what you're doing, because the Church has said, well, you can't function like that. But I'm saying to them, but Catholic tradition says not only we can, but we must, because Catholic tradition in the past has actually applauded those who did. I mean, I, I think back to Sophronius in Jerusalem, who just openly defied the command, a direct command of Honorius I? And there's no doubt, but he was a real Catholic Pope. That Sophronius, the bishop of Constantinople, of, of Jerusalem, I'm sorry, just openly defied him in speaking about the heresy and condemning the heresy of monophysitism and monothelitism, actually. And, um, and the church canonized him. And the Church excommunicated Honorius, the one who gave the command. I mean, we have Catholic tradition. It's been around all these years, and it's been around as a textbook to instruct us as to what we are to do in our own day. So I would say those who look at the Vatican and the modernists and what they've done to the Church and say, well, they're wrong because they're rejecting Catholic tradition. And then the same people turn to us and say, well, you can't do what you're doing and offering the Mass, the Mystery, and the Sacraments. And so on because the Church has said this wrong, I would say, well, now you're rejecting Catholic tradition. You're doing what you're accusing the modernists of doing, because you're not willing to go back and look at the example of Catholic tradition and realize that in the past the Church has said this is the right thing to do under these circumstances. And that's all we're trying to do.
1: Yep. Thanks for being here tonight, Father. Thanks for teaching us What Catholics Believe. Oh, you're very welcome, Tom. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you for being here. Thanks to all of our viewers as well for watching this episode of What Catholics Believe.